first four words of the entire Bible are perhaps the most foundational words that have ever been uttered in human history. Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God. There is no explanation for his existence, no defense of his being, only the unflinching and straightforward reality that God is. Before anything was created, before the stars were hung in the sky, before the ocean billows rolled, before the flowers bloomed, before the animals were born, before human beings walked on the earth, there has only been one reality. God is. If you were to jump in a time machine and go back to any point in history, at any stop along the way, you would find only one constant at each place, and that is that God exists. And because of this, each one of us have thoughts about what God is really like. Every religion, every person thinks about God. It is inescapable to do so. You say, well, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. You might be right in saying you don't believe in God, but you certainly do think about him. You just happen to think he's a figment of human imagination and not worth worshiping. We cannot escape actually thinking about God, actually being confronted with thoughts, imaginations of what must God be like, which is why A.W. Tozer famously said that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And we ask, is he right in saying that? Well, that really depends on what we mean when we say it. It is true that what you think about God matters more than what you think about anything else and all existence without exception. But it is not enough to simply think about God as if thinking about him were sufficient. No, we must think rightly about God. We must think of him as he truly is and this makes all the difference. Paul David Tripp says it like this, Because the existence of God is so foundational, everyone has a position on it, and everyone lives in the context of how he or she thinks about it. There is no place where the existence of God doesn't press upon and shape how you live. There is no philosophical, scientific, psychological, political, sociological, educational, or entertainment system that is not shaped by whether you think God exists or who you think he is. The way you approach your children, your spouse, your neighbor, your fellow workers, your boss, your parents, your daily tasks, the joys and disappointments of life, your finances, your body, your sexuality, your education, your identity, your meaning and purpose, and life and death itself will all somehow be shaped by your view of God. It is impossible for any human being anywhere to not live a God-referenced life. And so our task this morning is to answer the question, who is God? And it's probably pretty obvious, but we're not going to be able to answer that question 
completely this morning in 40 minutes. But though we are not able to answer it completely, we can answer it correctly. And the reason why is because God has made himself known. This is what Pastor Dan preached on last Sunday, and it's where we will begin our uh, exploration of who is God this morning with the reality that God can be known because he has made himself known. Mark Dever pastors a church in Washington, D.C., and he tells this story. He says, I had made a statement in a doctoral seminar about God. Bill responded politely but firmly that he liked to think of God rather differently. For several minutes, Bill painted a picture for us of a friendly deity. He liked to think of God as being wise but not meddling, compassionate but never overpowering, ever so resourceful but never interrupting. This, said Bill in conclusion, is how I like to think of God. My reply was perhaps somewhat sharper than it should have been. Thank you, Bill, I said, for telling us so much about yourself. But we are concerned to know what God is really like, not simply about our own desires. His point, of course, is that statements about what we imagine God to be like tell us far more about ourselves than they do about God. And yet we hear these kind of statements all the time. I just cannot imagine that a loving God would actually send people to hell. I just can't believe that God would be against what makes me happy and my preferred lifestyle. We have all come to normalize the language of speaking of God as we imagine him, as we think he is. But the Bible tells us that actually making a God in our image, in our likeness, after our understanding and our imagination is the epitome of idolatry. The second commandment says this, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And so whenever we take the image of something created, whether it's created by God in the world or created by us in our minds and we worship that, it's idolatry. And Romans says, it speaks of those who exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. When we fashion a God in our own imaginations, our own understanding, we think that's what God must be like, that is idolatry. To worship a God of your imagination is to worship an idol. And it reveals the depravity and pride in our hearts. The Bible says we are made in God's image and we must never make him in ours. J.I. Packer said it like this, it needs to be said with the greatest possible emphasis that those who hold themselves free to think of God as they like are breaking the second commandment. At best, they can only think of God in the image of man as an ideal man, perhaps, or a superman. But God is not any sort of man. We were made in his image, but we must not think of him as existing in ours. To think of God in such terms is to be ignorant of him. Is not to know him. And he goes on to say that to follow the imagination of one's heart in the realm of theology is the way to remain ignorant of God and to become an idol worshiper. The idol, in this case, being a false mental image of God made by one's own speculation and imagination. All of which means that the only hope we have for knowing God, for knowing who he is, is if he tells us. Otherwise, we are only left with what we imagine him to be like. And this is what Dan preached on a week ago, that we can know God because he has made himself known to us in his word. We are totally hopeless unless God tells us, this is who I am, this is what I am like. And so as the great theologian Herman Bobbing said, all knowledge of God rests on revelation. He has told us. 
And it is impossible to grow in sanctification, to deepen in our worship, and to become more passionate on mission without thinking rightly about God, without dwelling on who he is and meditating on his beauty and goodness in the Godhead. There's a group of us who every Sunday morning before church gathers and uh, spends time praying. And this morning, it seemed that uh, a number of us were continually reflecting on that well-known children's song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. God has told us who he is, and this is how we know his love for us, which of course all leads us into our second idea this morning, which is that not only can God be known, but God is worth knowing. God is worth knowing. Now for us to even entertain the idea of, well, what does knowing about God have to do with my life, uh, as if we're trying to see what's the relevance of this, to even entertain that idea and have it make sense reveals something very important about ourselves, namely that in our day and age, we have come to value the pragmatic or the useful over the true. We care more about whether something is useful to us than whether it is true. And we can easily see this in the political rhetoric that is spewed by both sides. Both sides spew false narratives at times. And the real question is not whether, well, is that true? It's, is this useful to my cause and my narrative? We value usefulness more than we value truth. We value whether this is going to actually uh, be uh, meaningful to the way I live and, and not so much whether this is just true in and of itself. But when it comes to knowing God, he is true. But, and I also use this word with some reservation, he is also the most useful subject in the universe. There is nothing more profitable for our lives, nothing that matters more, nothing that impacts the way that we live like knowing God. Charles Spurgeon began a sermon on the immutability of God by saying, it has been said by some that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose this idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom we call Father. There is nothing that so delights a Christian like getting to know God more. There's nothing that so engages our hearts, so enlivens our minds, so changes our actions, so transforms our relationships, so awakens our affections, so empowers our mission, so deepens our worship than to meditate on God. This is eternal life, Jesus says, that they know God. The psalmist says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. It is the deepest joy of our hearts to know God, to delight in him, and to learn more and more about his goodness and his grace and his mercy and his character. Husbands, let me, uh, let's say that your wife sits down and begins telling you about herself and says, I, I want you to know this about me. And you interrupt her and say, hey, listen, honey, I think our relationship's doing okay. Uh, can I go play video games? Um, don't try it, but... Imagine how that would go. Now, it's one thing if we speculate on what God is like if we have no way of knowing him. 
But it's quite another thing when he has told us. And yet often what we do is as God tells us who he is in his word, we kind of close the Bible and we say, hey, God, I think we're, I think we're on good terms. I'm going to go do something else. Which is quite revealing as to how little value we truly think there is that comes from knowing God. But there's another reason why we must meditate on God as well. And it's because this is actually how we are transformed. We were created by God to become like what we behold. Which means that the more we dwell and focus on the things of the world, the more we will come to look like the world. The more we will come to resemble worldly things. But the more we behold the beauty of God, the more we will be conformed to him and his ways. I recently read someone share advice Tim Keller had given him many years ago. And Keller said this, we are exposed to so much brokenness in the city. Not just the city either. We must constantly expose our hearts and our minds to beauty. The way to guard against sin and filth and brokenness that we see around us and within us is to constantly dwell and meditate on beauty. And the most beautiful being in the universe is God. It reminds me of Philippians 4 where Paul says, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And friends, what is more true, more honorable, more just, more pure, more lovely, more commendable, more excellent, and more worthy of praise than God is? And so our hearts should continually dwell upon him. And so since we can know God, because he's told us, and since God is worth knowing, then the question is, who is God? Well, Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God, who is this God? What is he like? The very next verse says, the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Or then John 1, which intentionally parallels Genesis 1, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Speaking there of the Son. And so just there, in the act of creation, we have a reference to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God is Trinity. God is Trinity. Now this word's not used in the Bible, which means we'll jump around to several texts this morning, but it's nonetheless a very thoroughly biblical concept. For others of you, though, when I say the word Trinity, you kind of sit back and you say, oh, man, here we go. Uh, This is going to get complex. Um, And so think then, when's the last time you heard a sermon about the Trinity? Now, we try to weave it into everything that we say and do, uh, but what's clear is that the scope of biblical witness, when we consider the entirety of Scripture obviously teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. And I dare say that there is uh, no way that we could possibly overstate just how central and important the doctrine of the Trinity is to our faith. Everybody has thoughts about God. Everybody does. And one of the, 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 the biggest, most important ways, not the only one, one of the biggest ways in which our faith as Christians is differentiated from the faith of other religions, whether it be Islam or Mormonism or Hinduism or Judaism or atheism or any others, is that we believe God is Trinity. We do not worship multiple gods, not three gods, one God. Yet this God did not create his son. He has eternally been triune. 
And so in an increasingly globalized society where you will no doubt interact with many people of uh, differing faiths, it is important that we understand that one of the quickest and biggest ways in which our faith differs from the faith of other people around us is that we believe that God is Trinity. Augustine was one of the uh, most brilliant theologians the church has ever seen and one of its strongest defenders of Trinitarian theology. He faced many... uh, heresies in his day that he stood against, particularly pertaining to the deity of the Son. And he said this, in no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious or the discovery of truth more profitable than the Trinity. Let's let's unpack that. In no other area, another subject is error more dangerous. You say, yes, because probably many, many of you are saying, I'm hesitant to even talk about the Trinity because there's so many pitfalls here, I'm going to say the wrong thing. And it's, it's so confusing. And I know there's a lot of heresies and I don't want to step into those things. So, so certainly there's no other area where, where error is more dangerous. And there's no other area where inquiry is more laborious. It takes a lot of labor to understand this. Do I hear an amen? All right, you're better than the first hour. First hour had already lost me at that point. But what about when he says no area where the discovery of truth is more profitable? Do we believe that? But if we believe what we just said, that, that knowing God is the most, worst, most worthwhile subject in the universe, then of course, dwelling upon his nature, that he is Trinity, is the most profitable, profitable endeavor we could embark on. And so what does it mean that God is Trinity? Here's a way of saying it and thinking about it, that we worship one God who eternally exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. I'll say it again. We worship one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's break that down. God is one. As J.T. English has said, the first instinct of Trinitarianism is monotheism. God is one. One of the most significant passages in the entire Old Testament for the Jewish believer was Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the New Testament certainly maintains this and and simply just treats it as if it's a, a basic fact. And it says, Paul says to Timothy, For there is one God, and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Or in Corinthians, there is no God but one. In fact, James so assumes that his audience believes in one God that he says, this doesn't even distinguish you from demons. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe that and they shudder. See, friends, we are not polytheists believing in multiple gods. There are not three gods. There is one God and one God alone. And he eternally exists in three persons. There is one essence in God, yet three persons in God. They are distinct, yet each truly and fully God. They are not parts that make up a whole. It is not as if the Father is one-third God, and the Son is one-third God, and the Spirit is one-third God, and you put them together and you get God. No, no, no. They are each truly and fully God. Nor are they one person who just kind of looks different at different points in history. Sometimes you say, well, in the Old Testament, he was Father. In the New Testament, he was Son. In the uh, church age, he's Spirit. No, no, no. God is always triune, which is why, as a bit of a side note, The illustrations we often use for the Trinity, like an egg or water, often wind up just confusing things all the more, and so we should stay away from them. The best illustration of the Trinity is what God gave us, the Trinity. Okay, 
back, right? So the Father is God, truly, fully, completely God. He is not part God, nor is he lacking anything in deity. Ephesians 1 says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4, there is one God and Father of all. The Father is God. And so too is the Son also God. Truly, fully, completely God. He is not lacking in anything. He is not part God. In fact, many of the heresies the early church dealt with were over the deity of the Son. How can it be that God is three in one? There's much wisdom we can learn from them. In fact, at the bottom of your bulletin outline, there are uh, some recommended resources that I've listed that can help you uh, understand these things and maybe in, in deeper ways that I think are engaging and understandable. But, uh, you know, the Son of God is not a created being. He is co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, and he is God. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, which means the Son of God, who is the eternal Word of God. He was in the beginning, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it says, all things were made through him, and then it says, without him was not anything made that was made. So let's do a little bit of logic here. If nothing was made apart from the Son then if the sun was made, something would have had to be made apart from the sun. Tracking with me? The sun was not created, but he created all things. And throughout his ministry, Jesus, who is the incarnate son of God, made it clear. He said, I and the Father are one in John 10. He claims to have existed long before. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Also taking upon himself the divine name as the I am. Titus speaks of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Son is God, and so too is the Spirit of God, truly, fully, completely God. He is not part God, nor is he lacking anything in deity. And one of the clearest examples of this comes in Acts chapter 5. This is when Ananias and Sapphira come and they kind of have sold their land and they give the money to the church and they lie about how much money they had given versus how much they had kept back. And in the same statement, look what Peter says. He begins this statement by saying, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he ends the statement, you have not lied to man, but to God. Lying to the Holy Spirit is the same thing as lying to God, because the Spirit is God. God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit are each truly, fully God. Let me give you an example of why this matters today. It's not uncommon to speak of uh, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament as being different. The God of the Old Testament is the Father. He's full of wrath and judgment on sin. And then along comes the Son in the New Testament. He's full of love, and he's going to appease the Father. And, 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 and you know, there's, there's elements of truth in that, but we must be very, very careful to guard against viewing the God of the Old Testament as different than the God of the New Testament, for he is the same. He is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. God is always who he is, which means that uh, what one person of the Trinity is, the whole Trinity is together, and what the whole Trinity is together, each person of the Trinity is, which means this. When we say God is love, we don't mean the Son is love. We mean the Father is love, the Son is love, and the Spirit is love. And we say God is just. We don't just mean the Father is just. 
we mean the Father is just, the Son is just, and the Spirit is just. They are each truly, fully God, and they are one. Yet they are not interchangeable. The Father is not the Son, nor is he the Spirit. The Son is not the Father, nor is he the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father, nor is he the Son. They are co-eternal. They are not merely different forms or modes of the same person taking on different forms. Again, here's why this is important. Each person of the Godhead is involved in our salvation. The Father initiates our salvation. The Son accomplishes our salvation. And the Spirit applies our salvation. But it is heretical to suggest that the Father took on flesh and dwelt among us and died on the cross. He did not. The Son did. Yet we hear this in prayers often. It's inadvertent. And yet precision matters. And we pray things like, Father, thank you for dying on the cross for us. Except for he didn't. We must not confuse the persons of the Trinity, for they are not interchangeable, yet they are each involved in our salvation. It is not just the work of the Son, but the work of the triune God. I love the way that Galatians 4 puts this. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of the woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. He says, we are adopted as sons of the father by the work of the son, and that the Spirit applies this truth to our hearts so that we can testify that God is our Father. The Father initiates our salvation, the Son accomplishes our salvation, and the Spirit applies it to our hearts and lives. What distinguishes them from one another is not any part of their being or nature, but rather their relations with each other. The Father is unbegotten, the Son is eternally begotten, of the Father and the Spirit eternally proceeds forth from the Father and the Son. And so we've seen how the triune God is at work in creation and in salvation, and it should be noted that anywhere God is at work, it is the triune God at work. Anywhere God works, he works as Trinity. So turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. I want to show you an example of when the triune God is on the scene, and it's very evident at the same time. This is at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry here on earth, and you know, this is the incarnate Son of God sent by the Father to take on flesh. And so at the beginning of his public ministry comes the time where he is ready to be baptized, and Matthew takes great attention to tell us how the triune God is on the scene at this moment working. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You see here, the Son is incarnate as Jesus. 
the spirit descends on him like a dove and the father speaks from heaven, that's my son and I'm pleased with him. Flip forward in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. That was at the beginning of Christ's earthly ministry. And at the end of his earthly ministry, as he's getting ready to be taken up into heaven at the ascension, he is, uh, he, he's told his disciples, right? He's already risen from the, from the dead. And he's told his disciples, it's actually better that I leave you because I'm going to send my spirit to you to indwell you. In fact, he says in Acts, we, we read of him saying that, uh, wait, don't, don't start this mission yet until I give you the spirit because he's going to be the one that empowers the mission. It's not up to you and I and our strength. It's up to the spirit of God who dwells in us to accomplish the mission of God. And so as Jesus is being taken up into heaven, he right before that gives them one final charge, one last command. He says, this is what you are to be spending your time doing until I return. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. So, so Jesus says, baptize in the name, singular, one name, Yahweh. The triune God shares the, the name of God. Baptize in that name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons. One God, three persons. So at creation, at the baptism of Christ, at our salvation, at the ascension of Christ, it's clear the triune God is at work. And if we were to have more time and were to, were to look at everything God does, we will see that God works as Trinity. And this is clear throughout the Bible's teaching too. Sometime this week, read John chapters 13 through 16. Uh, it's interesting, this is the uh, upper room discourse. The night before Jesus is going to be killed on the cross, he is teaching his disciples. Now, I want you to picture in your mind if you knew that tomorrow you're going to be killed and that your best friends are going to be in mourning, that their whole world is going to collapse in upon itself, that everything is going to crumble around them, that they're going to be left hopeless and aimless, thinking the entire universe has been shattered and wondering, what do I do with my life now? What would you say to them? You know what Jesus says to them the night before that happens? He begins teaching them about the Trinity. As some have noted, there is no more obvious testament to, the, uh, to how relevant this is for daily life than that, that the Lord Jesus said, you know what they need to hear right now? They need to hear about my relationship with my Father. They need to hear about the Spirit of God who is coming. I'm going to tell them about the Trinity. And then his prayer in John 17 is a, a wonderful thing to read as well. And, you know, the rest of the New Testament is unpacking this too. One of my favorite uh, places where it does so is in 1 Peter chapter 1. In this, Peter is saying that we are born again to a living hope. He explains what has happened to us in salvation. And he does so by showing how the Father is at work, how the Son is at work, and how the Spirit is at work. And look at how he begins this most excellent chapter. He says it in uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is who God is. He is Trinity. One God in three persons. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you say, well, then who is he? How does he relate to his creation? And we should let him tell us that as well. In Exodus chapter 34, Moses says to God, show me your glory. Any, anyone of you want to pray that? Show me your glory, God. Show me who you are. Tell me who you are. And God says, okay, I'll show you. And this is what God says about himself. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That is how God reveals himself to us. That's who God says he is. And what it means is that this is who the triune God is. The triune God is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithful. He is keeping his steadfast love for thousands. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin and he does not clear the guilty and so how then can we know him if he doesn't clear the guilty well that's what we've just looked at with the glory of God working in our salvation that the father before the foundation of the world chose his people and in the fullness of time sent his son to take on flesh to live among us as a human being and to die the death we deserved on the cross so that he could bring us to himself and that the spirit would testify in our hearts apply it to our hearts that we are children of God and co-heirs with Christ. This is who our God is. As Paul Tripp says, this is your God. He is holy in every way possible, and all he is and all he does. He is the source of everything that exists, and he does not need anything that exists. His knowledge of everything is always accurate, and he is forever without the need of being taught anything. He is never surprised, never unaware, never unprepared, never confused, and never distraught. He never needs to discover, and he never needs to unlearn or relearn anything. What he thinks, purposes, declares, and does is always right and true. His judgments are never mistaken, biased, or wrong. Everything that exists depends on him for existence. He alone sits on the throne of the universe, and he rules it according to his all-wise and holy will. His perfect rule is not dependent on the instruction or counsel of anyone. He does what he pleases, and what he pleases is always right and best. And so as we turn our attention to our final idea this morning, it is considering the question of how does all of this shape and fuel our worship and our mission, both individually and as a church? We've got to understand that the chief aim of God in Scripture is not to answer all of our objections or to figure everything out. If we could understand all of this, we would have a God who is no bigger than our own imagination. And no offense, but that's a pretty puny God, all things considered. Rather, God's aim in Scripture is to drive us to worship him. What we do know about him should cause us to worship And in fact, we should guard against thinking of knowing God and worshiping God as if they're two separate realities, for they are not. We worship God by knowing him more and more. Knowing God doesn't just lead us to worship as if worship is a separate reality. Knowing God is our worship. The more we come to know and enjoy God, the more we worship God. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him And so the more that we come to know God, then the more we must come to worship God. Which is not the same thing as you and I. 
and we must be careful against applying the same to God. And what I mean is this, all of us fear deep down that there is something about us that if someone else found out, they would love me less. There's a fear in all of our hearts, sometimes legitimate, that the more someone would get to know me, the less they're really gonna love me. But that is never the case with God. There is not a single thing in all of the universe, never has been and never will be, a single thing about God that would cause us to love him less. He is the most glorious, most supreme, most perfect, and most pure being in the universe. And so we can confidently approach the subject of knowing him more and more because we know that everything we learn about God, everything we discover about God will only serve to fuel our love for him. And we will never discover a single thing about him that would ever diminish our love for him. And every single day from now to the rest of eternity, what we'll be doing day after day after day after day after day is discovering more and more of the riches and depths of the goodness and beauty of God. Like a Christmas morning where underneath the tree there is always and evermore another present open, another present open, is the eternity of the Christian that forever and ever and ever we will be discovering more of God's beauty and glory without a single fear that anything we learn will diminish our love for him in the slightest, but all will fuel us to praise him more and more. See, there was a time where the religious leaders came to Jesus and they tried to trick him. They said, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Jesus says that the, the best thing we could do with our lives is come to love God with our heart, soul, and mind more and more. Our chief end is to love and glorify and enjoy God. And how can we love him if we don't know him? So the fuel for our love for him is knowing him more and more. And so Jesus went on to say, a second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, Jesus said in John 13, he says that how are we to love each other? He says, love them like I've loved you. Which means then that the way that we love others will be fueled by spending time meditating on him and the way that he has loved us. And so we see that knowing God is immensely practical for love, but so too is knowing God as Trinity. If I were to go stand on the street corner here at uh, Main Street in Claremont, and I would just take a poll of people and say, who is God? Or even if I were to take a poll of those of you here this morning, who is God? I would be willing to bet that the most common answer is going to be God is love. This may be the most well-known verse in America, and it comes from 1 John 4, 8, where he says, anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. And yet what happens when we take the doctrine of God is love and separate it from the doctrine of God is Trinity? All of a sudden we have a man-centered faith and a different God altogether. Let me explain. Uh, if not for the Trinity, then before creation, before anything existed, Right? And if love is something that it has to be at least somewhat outward focused, uh, then prior to creation, how could the God who is love have actually been love? Which means that not only did God change then at some point and become love, but actually that by creating us, God was becoming who he is. Or maybe say it another way, that God needed us to actually be God. 
And yet there are many people today who believe that God created us because he needs us. But that is an unbearable weight upon any of our shoulders. We cannot even bear the weight of another human being's dependence, much less the almighty God of the universe. Yet when we understand God as Trinity, we recognize all of this is wrong. God does not need us in order to be God. Because the God who is love has always been love within the Godhead forever and ever, for all of eternity, with the love shared in the Father and the Son in the Spirit. Which means that when God created us, he didn't do it because he needed us. When God saved us, he didn't do it because he needed us. God needs nothing from us, and we have nothing to offer him that he might want to be tempted with. I like the way that Jen Wilkin puts it. And if you're looking at how to take deep theology and apply it to everyday life, I heartily commend Jen Wilkin's writing and teaching to you. She's phenomenal at that. She says this, our needs influence our decisions. A need for money can influence us to steal. A need for intimacy can influence us to have an affair. A need for attention can influence us to talk in a certain tone or dress in a certain style. The greater our need, the greater our potential to be coerced or convinced into paying a steep price to meet it. Just ask an addict. Our needs weaken us in the face of temptation. This is why when James 1.13 tells us that God cannot be tempted, we believe what it says. There is no carrot to dangle before the Almighty. What can possibly tempt the one whose every need and desire is wholly met in himself? Praise God, no human possesses anything God needs, nothing with which to coerce him or manipulate him. I don't want you to have that kind of leverage with him, and I'm certain you don't want me to either. We are kept safe from each other's divine blackmail by the self-sufficiency of God. He did not create us. He did not save us because he needs us, because he was lonely. No, the God who is love has always been love within the Godhead. He has always been totally satisfied. And so sometimes we think, well, this, that, that, that feels like rejection. Because if another person says, I don't need you, we take offense to it. But listen, it is the most freeing thing in the universe when God says, I don't need you, but I want you. It makes his love all the more astounding that God freely chooses to enter into a relationship with us, not to get anything from us, but to give us himself. And we only rightly understand this when we understand that God is Trinity. He has always been love within the Godhead. And out of the overflow of that love, he freely chose to paint his glory across the blank canvas of the universe and to create human beings to bring them into the enjoyment of his beauty forever. He planned from eternity past those whom he would, uh, he would save. And, and in the fullness of time, he sent the Son to redeem those people. And the Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son to impress these things upon our hearts deeper and deeper. And the goal of all of this, the goal of creation, the goal of our salvation, and the goal of everything God does was to bring glory to himself so that human beings like you and I could be swept up into the eternal fellowship of the triune God, which has no beginning and will have no end. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And we share in the glorious inheritance of the Son in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We are co-heirs with Christ and sons of God, and we are are brought into the never-ending, without any beginning relationship of God forevermore, and we will grow each day to learn and enjoy him more and more and more. That's what awaits us as children of God. And this all fuels our worship corporately as well. I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. This is where we will close this morning. This fuels our worship as a church, because when we come together We are doing so to worship the triune God.
of the universe. Listen, there is not a single worship leader, not a single preacher or pastor who can ever take you to God's presence. Only Jesus Christ, the Son of God, can do that, and he has. He has brought us into the presence of God where we can enjoy him. And this is what we see in Revelation 4 and 5. This is John, the apostle, getting a picture of the throne room of God. He says in verse 2 of chapter 4, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And so John says, uh, I'm seeing the throne of the Father through the Spirit. And all around the throne, day and night without end, the creatures are praising God and crying out in verse 8, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You want to know what heaven's going to be like? Look at that. It is going to be the never-ending praise of the triune God. And then John tells us in the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Only God can open the scroll and no one's found worthy. And so the apostle John is weeping at the desperation of this state. Who can open the scroll? And then look at the glorious words of verse five. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And what happens is, is John turns around. He expects to see a mighty lion. And he says, sees a slaughtered lamb, the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And all of a sudden, a new song begins ringing out. Verse 9 Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Verse 12 Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Verse 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Heaven is filled with the praise of the triune God and will be for all of eternity. And you and I get to be a part of that. You and I are brought in by the work of God to dwell with him for all time. And when we gather as a church now, it is a foretaste of that day where we're, we're, we're looking forward to that day to come and here and now we're joining our voices together to remind each other of our great God who has brought us to himself and to sing his glory and his fame forever and ever. And this is why as Paul wrote, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you've told us in your word about yourself, that we can know you. And not, only, and not only just have thoughts about you, but that we have correct thoughts about you. We can know you rightly because you've told us. And that we can know you rightly because you have done everything necessary to bring us to yourself. 
And so we thank you and we praise you. We praise you, O triune God, for your work in our lives. We praise you because you are glorious and worthy of our worship and praise today and forever. And so I pray that you would impress deeper into our hearts your beauty, your goodness, that we'd be transformed as we look at you and dwell upon you, that we'd be, we'd be captivated by your goodness and that it would, it, would, it would drive us to love you and love others in, in a deeper way. And so we thank you. We give all praise and glory to you for you alone are worthy. And we pray this in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.